So first to say thank you. It's just lovely to be here this morning uh, and uh, to see you. Uh, I think that... Uh, you know, when Johnny said we love Heather very much, I just thought that's my heart for you guys. I love you very much. And my sense is of God stirring something uh, here, and uh, it's exciting to push into that. Uh, and that's my prayer is that we'll discern where God's leading us really, really clearly, and that this will be a blessing, not just to us, but to, to many, many others as, as things spill out. Uh, but let's not jump ahead of what God might be doing. We'll walk that step by step and, uh, and see, uh, see what happens. Thank you. Uh, lots of you know that I used to be a speech therapist many years ago before I was a minister. And I think I've told some of you before that there was a little uh, fella uh, who I just thought was great. His name was John. He didn't have much, or I'll call him John, it wasn't really. Uh, uh, <laughs> he didn't have much verbal language. And when he did get words, he really used them. So uh, he got why as a word at one stage and just used to ask why, why, why. And because he loved the crack, when he got to that point where... Uh, you know, he could see that people were getting just fed up. You know, they get to that point, well, why? Because God wants it that way. Or why? Because it just is. He would just look at you uh, with, a, with a wee look on his face and he'd go, Tibau. And Tibau meant, think about it. Just think about it. Now, if I was to summarize the Bible passage that we're going to dig into, and we are going to dig into it this morning, it would be with the words, Tibau. Think about it. But that language is really gentle compared with the language that Jesus uses in the passage that we're about to read together. In the passage that we're about to read and consider, Jesus uses language that's really hard for us to hear. I love what Zoe said at the beginning, that this, we're not in this for comfort. And in this passage, Jesus is going to make us uncomfortable if we really sit under his word here. I think I've been watching too many American uh, dramas through the pandemic and through lockdown, but it feels to me like as we come to this passage, there needs to be one of those warning screens, you know, the way the one that says, this contains things that might upset you because it really really does listen with me to Luke 14 Luke 14 and I'm starting at verse 25 large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes even their own life such a person cannot be my disciple and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has words to hear, let them hear. 
In order for us to understand, I want to go back to what Johnny said about engaging. Let's just pray for a minute. Father, I pray that you'd really help us to, to sit under your word, that your spirit, your spirit who loves, your spirit who points us to Jesus would stir in our hearts just in the way that your spirit stirred in the hearts of disciples long ago, for we want you, Jesus. We're hungry for you. Would you speak? Holy Spirit, speak. Amen. In order for us to understand this passage properly, we've got to look at the context. We've got to, to take a wee step back from the verses. Now, we could chat for a long time about how the Gospels are constructed. On the one hand, some of us could argue that they're a chronological account of what happened. So that if the parable of the great banquet comes before this teaching from Jesus, well, that's the way it was. It's a chronological time-bound account. On the other hand, some of us might want to argue that when those who were writing the Gospels uh, were doing that, that they grouped Jesus' teaching, they grouped the material according to themes within the big story of Jesus' life. So you've got the big story, the meta-narrative of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension. But within that big story, within that arc, they grouped material according to themes so that those who read and heard it would be able to follow those themes through. And that's a live debate that you might want to talk about if you're that sort of person as you walk by the uh, later on. Either way, the context really, really matters. So we need, in the light of Jesus' hard teaching here, to take a wee step back and look at the context. Luke begins what we have as chapter 14 by telling us at about a time when Jesus was at the house of a Pharisee and when he healed a man who was there. And then Jesus, on the back of that, pushes his proud hosts and says, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your sisters and bro your brothers and sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. So Jesus there making comfortable people uncomfortable and pushing the boundaries yet again of how people wanted to limit who he was and what he was here to do. And then he goes on to tell the story, the parable of the banquet, where a man gets a banquet ready, gives the instructions that the people are about to go out and invite them, and the people who are invited first make excuses now, remember this for what we're about to talk about. Make excuses to do with possessions, to do with work, to do with family, putting those things first. So he gives the instructions that those who are in the streets and alleys of the time, town, are to be invited. The message couldn't be clearer in the bit that comes before verse 25, that even if the religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, uh, this message, this gospel is for everyone. The boundaries are being pushed. Then we get the section we're digging into, and straight after that, Luke 15, is that fantastic chapter, Lost Sheep, Lost Son, Lost Coin. The God who loves everybody and who shows that inclusive love by taking the initiative, by doing the seeking, by doing the listening. 
we've got to understand that that context the context of the boundary-pushing Jesus, the context of the Jesus who's saying, don't limit me to your comfortable friends because this is an uncomfortable gospel. And the message of God's love is true and it extends to everyone, everyone. You who make excuses and those who you see as being outside, those who are lost for whom God comes looking. That's the context now, one of the things I find really difficult about the pandemic is relying on Teams messages and emails. And maybe you've been there because you write the message and you know the tone of voice you're writing it in, but the person getting it, it doesn't. And I've had too many situations where the tone of voice in which my written message has been heard was different to the way in which I meant it. That's what we've got to grasp here. We've got to hear the tone of voice with which Jesus speaks these really, really tough words. We need to hear the tone behind these written words. We hear, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple in the context of teaching and action, which speaks of God's love, his embracing, encompassing, seeking love, which extends to those who make excuses, to those who are comfortable, to those who are seen as outside and on the margins. Do you get that? It's really, really important. With that tone in mind, Let's hear what Jesus is saying. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. I think, well, my guess is looking at you, that most of us would have been in that crowd if we'd lived then. Because we know what it is to feel something stirring. We know what it is to want to explore and push in to new things. I definitely have been there. I love, I love this picture of the radical, challenging, change-making Jesus. I love the picture of Jesus pushing against boundaries. I'm a girl who grew up with heroes who were people like Gladys Aylward, who uh, worked as a, a servant in a house, who, uh, but who felt God and who felt God calling her to be a, a missionary in China. The mission agency turned her down because she wasn't good enough at Chinese. So she saved herself. She went home and she worked. She saved herself. She got her there. She got herself there. Uh, she, uh, and she lived her life in that context. At the time, young women's feet were bound. And she went about the country making sure that feet weren't bound. Because can you imagine how that would limit you? She was an advocate uh, for justice for prisoners. And when Japan invaded that part of China, she led 100 orphans over mountains to safety. That that's my type of girl, Gladys Aylward, or people like Edith Cavell, who was a nurse in World War I, a brilliant nurse, fantastic uh, at nursing. She saved both British and German people because she said uh, that, uh, that God's love extends beyond nationality. She helped 200 people to escape and was executed as a result by a firing squad in 1915. Or Marie Curie, the brilliant scientist. 
I love, I grew up, I'm sparked by people like that who go against the norms of their time, who were up for change and courageous. I think, I think I'd have been in that crowd. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Can you imagine it? The excitement. Is this the Messiah? Maybe they were singing as they went. There'd have been chat and banter in the crowd. Something stirring, something new. What was this guy about? Do you get that? And Jesus turns to them and looks in the eye at them in the eye and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Can you just put yourself there? Can you imagine what it would have felt like to see Jesus look you in the eye and say those words. Just put yourself there, happy, excited, traveling with Jesus and confronted because he loves us. Remember the context with the cost of that discipleship. What would you have felt really? Would you have felt a bit of a bubble burst? Would you have avoided his eye? Or would you have thought, maybe, just maybe, this is worth giving my life to? What would you have done? If anyone doesn't comes after me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, such a person cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words even to read. And we've got to think about what they mean. Now, the word hate here is shocking to our ears. I've heard myself even hesitating before I read it. Now, first of all, we need to understand that it's likely that Jesus isn't using the word hate literally, but choosing a strong word to bring the point home. It's a device that Jewish rabbis would have used to catch attention, to make us really think. Now, New Testament scholars give us a few ways in which we can understand the word hate here. And in doing that, I don't want us to lose its power, but I want us to understand what Jesus means. Uh, so first of all, um, in the context of the day, love and hate were seen especially in the way in which you honored other people. My love for my family would have been seen in the way I honored them, in the way in which I honored their culture. Jesus knew that for Jewish people in that crowd, to follow him would have meant coming out of that family culture. That's so hard. Because you know, we know what it's like to be surrounded by family who love us or by people who are like family who love us. For them to say yes, would have meant coming out of that culture. In the language of that day, that could be translated as hating. Are you willing, says Jesus, to step out of comfortable culture, to put me really first? Other ways in which we can understand the word hate uh, would be in terms of loving less than, turning from, or a phrase I find really helpful because my heart attaches to things, and that's one of my besetting sins. It means detach yourself from, detach yourself. 
so that our primary allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus is being crystal clear here. And I don't want us to water this down as we grapple to understand what hate means. So it means being willing to step away from. It means detaching. It means putting Jesus first. It means loving other like family less than Jesus. The meaning's crystal clear. Jesus is saying, will you love me first? And whoever does not carry their own cross cannot be my disciple. Do you remember where these people are? They're on a road with Jesus. Do you know where that road leads? It leads to Jerusalem, where the cross is waiting for Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them, if you do not carry your cross, those who do not carry their cross and follow him cannot be his disciple. That means being willing to suffer. It means bearing reproach. Jesus here is calling out allegiance and he's calling out obedience. Now, preaching a passage like this, where Jesus is speaking so straight and so clearly, you don't need me or anyone else to draw out what that means. Jesus has to be our first love. Jesus, our primary allegiance. And that's going to be seen in what we do and who we are in our obedience It's deeply uncomfortable, profoundly challenging, but it's crystal clear. So the only question, the only question that under God I need to ask is what's God calling out in you? And what's God calling out in me? What other gods have crept in and taken Jesus' place? Maybe it's the God of apathy. Maybe it's the God of cynicism, been here, done that. Maybe it's the God of comfort or politics. Maybe it's the God of how others think about me. And then Jesus tells two stories, one about a person who wants to build a tower, one about a king who's considering going into battle. Both of those, both of those are saying, think about it, tip out. Consider this decision to follow. And let's not let ourselves off the hook, followers of Jesus. Because this isn't just about initial decisions. It's about today and it's about tomorrow and how we'll use our lives. And then in verse 33, he says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And I'm not about to say this is what he means by that. He means those who do not give up everything they have cannot be my disciples. And with one sentence, Jesus cuts through there and our gods like prestige and money and clothes and house and car and tech in the network of many loyalties. Loyalty to Jesus must be first, and loyalty to Jesus is the lens through which every other loyalty has to be viewed. And we know, we know that in the upside-down economy of God's kingdom, those who live this way find chains falling off and encounter life in all its fullness.
praying about today, I realize that I don't preach this passage very much. Because this is dangerous ground. And this is uncompromising. And it's really, really uncomfortable. Follow me is a wonderful invitation. But it's not an easy one. And that's why we need each other. And that's why Jesus promises the power and presence of the Spirit. Because he loves us. And he knows we can't do this on our own. He knows we want it. And he knows we can't do it on our own. Salt is good, says Jesus. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's thrown out. That's a scary picture for those of us who've been on this road for a while. For those of us who know what it is to be tired. Salt starts salty, but the saltiness fades. I don't want to be a Christian who starts well and runs out of steam. Those who have ears to hear, says Jesus, let them hear. So let's bring this home. Let's bring this home. I want to say a word before I do that about the kids in the corner. Thank you, God, <coughs> for those three little girls. And I think there's a wee parable here. I think there's a parable. Because they're, they're a generation who are going to be marked by decisions and how God leads us. There are generations like them and the ones who've never been to church who need a people who rise up and live for Jesus in this generation. That's my first part of the parable. And the second part of the parable is this. I'm glad they're making noise, so I don't want Jenny uh, or I don't want Lisa and I don't want Timmy uh, and, I, and I don't want anybody to be worried uh, about noise in the background or Johnny. No, because here's the parable. If we were sitting here in beautiful quiet with nothing to think about but the things that are going on in our own heads and, uh, and maybe what I'm saying, be quite easy. Actually, there are we parable for what's going on in the world. When we walk out those doors, there's going to be so much to distract us, so much to pull us away from what God might be saying. So thank God for the noise. So choose, guys. Choose what you're going to listen to. You're going to listen to and be distracted because that's quite funny. Or are we going to listen and sit under the word of God when Jesus says, salt's good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil or for the manure heap. It's thrown out. So let's bring this home. Why speak on this passage today? Well, first reason is that we all know that one of the dangers of this time is consumerism with regard to church. And the pandemic heightened that danger. All of us could sit at home in our PJs and watch church. All of us could sit at home with a nice top on and our pajamas underneath or our jogging bottoms and watch church. Uh, all of us, and tell me I'm not the only one who's done this, uh, could sit and have church on in the background but turn the sound down. 
sort of looked as if I was listening, but I wasn't really. I was doing something else. We all know the dangers of church consumerism, and the pandemic has hit us right in the face with that. It's really, really easy to be a Christian consumer. In our context, Jesus' words cut right through, bring us right back. Come on, walk with me. Will you walk the road to Jerusalem with Jesus? Cut through the easy excuses. Will we make Jesus our first allegiance when that's comfortable and when that's uncomfortable? Second reason I think that I wanted to speak about this today is that today we're responding to what we believe is a prompt of the Holy Spirit to gather. And there's been cost in that. You were here at half nine this morning when you could have been in your beds or doing other things. You've already experienced the cost of that. But here you are faithfully responding to the nudge of God's Spirit and I'm excited to see what God does as God leads us forward. But this too could become Christian consumerism. Even an easy worship fix. This must be a gathering of disciples who are serious about commitment, serious about living our faith, serious about helping each other to be more like Jesus as we say yes to Jesus every way, every day as Jesus invites us to follow. Seriously, serious about living wholeheartedly as followers of Jesus for the transformation of the world. That's reason two. We're here because God's spirit has prompted us. This could be consumerism. Are you up for the journey? Are you up for helping each other to be more like Jesus? Third reason is that if you're up for this sort of life, if you're a follower, we need each other. I cannot sit under this word and think that I can do this by myself. Preparing this sermon has been one of the most uncomfortable things I've done for a long time because you can't preach a passage like this and remain untouched when the Spirit nudges about the gods that have crept into my life, about the ways in which I've compromised, about the times when I've chosen my comfort and what I want over what God is clearly calling out. I can't do this by myself, neither can you. We need the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit, who's here just as much as the Spirit was within disciples in an upper room centuries ago. That same Spirit of God is here, longing to fill us and enable us. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need each other. We need people who'll call us out, to whom we'll answer honestly when they ask us, how are things between you and Jesus? Or you spoke about that struggle, how's it going? Let me pray with you and for you. This might be a context in which those sorts of relationships can be built. Why speak about it today? Because we can all be consumerism. Why speak about it today? Because there's something about today about a brink of a new thing. And we've got to be careful in this because we can't let that slip into being what we want. And we have to be serious about following that. Thirdly, we need each other. And fourthly, fourthly, taking Jesus' call to radical discipleship 
is part of our heritage as Methodists, for those of you who are Methodist in this room. It's part of Methodist CNA, DNA. To be a Methodist is to be awestruck at the all-inclusive love of Jesus. It is to be committed to Jesus with all we are. It's about being committed to allowing the Spirit to fill us so that we could grow as disciples. It's about being committed to journeying together and about letting faith impact the whole of society, about caring about justice and mercy as much as personal holiness. That was what sparked our forebears centuries ago. And I wonder as it's sparking us now, could there be something new stirring here? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he speaks and he calls them to a radical discipleship and he calls them to walk with him. And he says, think about it. Consider the cost because this isn't going to be easy. And he says, follow me. Let's pause now to listen as we make our response to Jesus. Let's listen for God. What is God speaking to you? You can have my heart if you don't mind broken things. But I heard that you make all things new. So I give these pieces back to you. If you want it, you can have my heart. Jesus, call us on closer and closer to you. Call us on together that we might hear your voice. Call us on and use us. Use us for the transformation of the world you love. In Jesus' name, amen.